It's only five months till Christmas. Can you believe that? Which means, unfortunately, in about four months, three, for those of you who are especially disturbed, um, we'll be hearing songs sung like, He's making a list and checking it twice. Santa Claus is coming. He sees you when you're sleeping. It's a really creepy part. He, he knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good, so... Yes. Be good for goodness sake. Please, right? That's, that's the song. And uh, this is one of the most familiar of, of Christmas songs and Christmas carols, uh, as creepy as it may be. And it, you know, it says something in this song that is not limited to the song. It's something, it's a philosophy, really, that is shared and held and believed by many, many people. Uh, and it's, it's really taken and given to God, and, and it's how people view the relationship with God and how that works, how, how God relates to us and how we should relate to Him. Unfortunately, it's very sad, but it's true. It, it kind of is the attitude and the mindset that that's how we need to be with God, that we better be good so He gives us good things um, because he's, you know, he's keeping this tally and this list. And, and if you don't uh, do everything that is completely good all the time, well then watch out, he's going to get you, you're going to get some sort of spiritual coal. And so it's, it's this very transactional approach to God. Be good, for goodness sake. You want to have blessing, you want to have favor from God, then you, you have to be really, really good. And, and if you have blessing and favor from God, it's a sure sign that you've been very, very good. If you don't have what you define... Or, or what culture d- tells you is good and, and is a, a blessing and favor from God, if you don't have those things as that's all defined, well then I guess, man, it's sad to be you. You haven't been that good. But how good is good enough? That's, I mean, if you, if you go with that logic... That's the question that has to be asked. If everything is based on my goodness, if God's love and His favor on my life and Him liking me is based on me being really, really good, kind of like Santa, you know, in the song, looks for really, really good children that He can reward, if that's how it works, how good is good enough? And even once you know that standard, let's say you find that out, you figure it out, how good is good enough? You figure that out. There's the standard, you see it. Is it really possible for even the most well-meaning, most sincere person to be that good all the time? Mark Twain said, everyone is a moon and has a dark side which he rarely shows to anybody. See, there are plenty of people who do good things. Even really evil people can still do good things. Non-Christians can do 
good things. The problem is, no matter how many good things we may do, the Bible clearly and consistently, I mean page after page, all through, it consistently teaches that the standard of, of goodness that you know, God is, is actually looking for and what He Himself has set, the standard isn't just really, really good. It's perfection. It's absolute holiness. And so, along with that, the Bible clearly and consistently teaches that we can't be good enough for God without God. We can't be good enough for God without God. We can't meet His glorious, righteous, perfect standard without Him directly intervening. We need God to directly intervene in our lives and to provide what we all lack if we have any hope of achieving that level of goodness that's good enough to reach eternity, to reach heaven, to know you're good with God. You can't do it on your own. You, you can't muster up that goodness within yourself, no matter how much you may want to and no matter how hard you may try. And that's exactly what Jesus was communicating to the person and really by also uh, by extension his disciples who were there around him in this encounter. That's exactly what Jesus was communicating in this next encounter that we're going to listen in on today. The rich young ruler, the rich young ruler, He's our next one-on-one, very personal encounter uh, as we continue in this series and as we look at this category under the series of the rich and the religious, or the religious and the rich, the rich young ruler. And we're going to pick up with this encounter in Mark chapter 10, Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 27, Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 27, and though he's not named as such in this passage and in this encounter. This certainly is the rich young ruler, and he's referenced that way in the other Gospels that also have the account of this encounter. Here in this passage, we're going to see really three specific categories or or divisions of this encounter and of this discussion. And the first of those um, really specific categories is that of serious questions. Serious questions. We're going to see that in just the first two verses, 17 and 18, where as this encounter begins, serious questions are asked and raised by both the, the person that comes to Jesus, the rich young ruler, and by Jesus Himself. Verse 17. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. Let's dive in together. As He, Jesus, was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt down before him. So you see the urgency, right? You see the the passion and the urgency and the sincerity, apparently. Because he runs up and he kneels down before him and asks him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So there's the first question. And right away we see this man had an I problem. He was approaching eternal life just like he probably did all the other areas of his life, of his very successful life. After all, he is a rich, young ruler. 
And so we see that he approached this much like I talked about the the kind of prevailing philosophy represented in that Christmas song, Santa Claus is Coming to Town. He approached life and an eternal life apparently with a very transactional way of going about it. Very transactional approach. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He's used to inheriting things. Perhaps being the rich young ruler that he was, maybe he inherited a lot of his wealth from someone that left it to him. And and so he's certainly dealing with money and in the financial world, he knows how inheritances work. And so he's, he's viewing eternal life and salvation in that way. Something you can inherit. And he's also viewing it as something that he can grab onto and And if he does enough wheeling and dealing and maneuvering and smart investing, maybe he can grab onto it. What must I do to inherit to get eternal life? It's a very transactional way of looking at it. Earning and deserving as opposed to needing and receiving. He, didn't, he wasn't going about this understanding, this is something I need and, and can't get on my own. It's something I need to receive as a gift. No, he was saying, how can I earn this? How can I do enough to deserve it? What must I do to deserve eternal life? And as sincere as he apparently was, I mean, after all, he runs up and he kneels down. As sincere and urgent as he apparently was, He wasn't recognizing his need for Jesus to save him because he couldn't save himself. That was totally absent of this entire uh, discussion and, and encounter up to this point. He wasn't seeing that at all. I need you. I can't do this myself. I need you to save me. That's not at all what we see here. We see that he's covering his basis like a smart investor would, right? Like somebody used to securing fortune and riches and finances. He's covering his bases. He felt that something was missing, obviously, or he wouldn't run up to Jesus and kneel down and ask this question with the urgency apparently that he did. He, he knows something's missing in his life. But he also felt that if Jesus could just give him a few pointers, like a good stock expert... He could just give me a few pointers, Jesus. I can take care of this myself like I always do. Everything else. Just, just give me a few pieces of advice. Point me in the right direction. That's not at all how salvation works. It's not about what we do or have done. It's not about what we can grab onto or get ourselves. It's not about clever maneuvering or operating. Titus 3.5 tells us this, He, God, saved us not because of righteous things we have done, but because of His mercy through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. That's how we receive salvation. By His mercy, not by anything we could possibly do. It's also by grace, because it's not by anything that we have done that should prevent us by rights from salvation. It doesn't prevent us. It's all about God and what He does. So that's the first question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? I know something's missing. I've been looking for it. I think you have the answer, but if if you'll just point me in the right direction, I'll take it from here, Jesus. And isn't it sad? That's, 
That's just how so many people operate, right? That's, that's how, what we see in the world. Maybe that was your story. Maybe that's, that's been true of you in your life. Where you have all these things in your life, but you know something's missing. Everybody does. Everybody knows something's missing. There is a God-shaped vacuum or a God-shaped hole in all of us that only He can fill. God has set eternity in the heart of man. But only in Him will we find that need and that vacancy met or filled. That was the first question. Here's the next one, which Jesus Himself asks. Verse 18. Why... Do you call me good? He, he, he said, good teacher. Good teacher, what must I do? Well, so Jesus, before he starts to answer the, the main part of the, you know, the, his question, the main need there, the main urgency, before he addresses that, Jesus says, wait, wait. Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. Hmm. Interesting. Right? This, this title, Good Teacher, it was never applied to other rabbis. Rabbis were addressed with honor and dignity. You know, rabbi, wise rabbi. But it was never good teacher that was given to other rabbis. And the reason they didn't use that title is because everybody would know that that title, the, the phrasing, it implied ultimate goodness. Supreme righteousness. Sinlessness, really. Perfection. And as good as the rabbis were, and as good as people knew they were, they knew they better not ever ascribe to any mere human, no matter how righteous and moral they might be, any sort of implication that they are sinless or, or perfect or the ultimate good, because only God is the ultimate good. And they knew that. They recognized that. I mean, you've got to at least give them that. They held on to that, that only God is the ultimate good. So they were kind of halfway there. So this guy, though, he comes up and says to Jesus, something that's striking. He says, good teacher, good rabbi. I'm recognizing you, and and as I kneel down before you, I'm recognizing you're above these other guys. There's something that sets you apart. I see in you what I perceive to be ultimate goodness. And it's important to understand in Jesus' response, I mean, he, He said, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. It's important to understand that in that response, Jesus was not hiding or denying His deity somehow. That's not at all what He was doing. Rather, by questioning the greeting, Jesus was intentionally trying to get this young man, this young rich ruler, to think about the significance of that statement. It's as if Jesus said, do you really know what you're saying here? Do you really know what you're implying when you call me good teacher? Because 
if he did, if he really did know what he was saying and knew what he was implying and he understood that and it was intentional, if he did, then this man would have to line up how he defined good with how Jesus did. You're with me on that? If he really believed Jesus was the ultimate good, then he would have to take the way he defined goodness and line it up, match it up with how Jesus defined good. And there's a really big difference in those standards. There's a really big difference in the standard that that I have and what I define as really, really good and how God, specifically in this context, Jesus, would define goodness. There's a really big difference in how you define it and how God defines it. So what we all, all of us have to do, this rich young man and all of us right here today, we always have to match the standard of goodness that we're looking to or clinging to with how God defines goodness and what His standard is. And that's what Jesus was trying to get this young man to do, and that's why He questioned it the way He did. There's a really big difference in those standards as we're going to see right now. Here's the next part of this encounter, the next category of this discussion and conversation. The first one that we saw was serious questions being asked. Now, in verses 19 through 21, we really have kind of a category of surprising answers. Surprising answers. In verse 19, Jesus continues with answering this rich young man. He says, you know the commandments. So not only was he rich, but he was also religious. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. So he's focusing on the major commandments. The most common, the biggest ones right there. I mean, those were the biggies. And that's what he was focusing on. And it's really important to understand, too, that Jesus didn't bring up these commandments as a way of implying that this rich young man could be saved by obeying them. That's not what he was saying. That's not why he pulled those up. He was emphasizing, by mentioning these, he was emphasizing perfection as God's standard. Perfection as God's standard. Jesus was saying, really, if you can keep the law perfectly in every way, then you are worthy to receive eternal life. So he was saying, you know the commandments. Are you observing those? Are you, you, know, are you applying those to your life? I mean, you know the law. The law is over you. And if you keep the law perfectly in every way, then you're worthy to receive eternal life. But Jesus' deeper point, don't miss this, and he didn't want the rich young man to miss this. Jesus' deeper point was that it's impossible for anyone to do that. If you can keep the law in every point perfectly, okay, then you're good enough. You're worthy. But it's impossible for anyone to do that, no matter how sincere or religious they may be, which was proven by the next part of the conversation. Verse 20. He said to him, Teacher, I, I have kept all these from my youth. Yay! I've done a really good job. 
I haven't cried. I haven't pouted. You know, referencing the song. I've kept all these things. I've done all the, everything you just said. <laughs> I'm good. I've kept all these since I was just a little boy. Verse 21. Love this part. Looking at him, Jesus loved him. Aren't you glad for that little statement? I mean, Jesus could have said, you stupid, spoiled brat. You naive moron. Or just looked at him like, you know, made him feel really stupid and small, but he didn't do that. Looking at him, Jesus loved him. There's a tenderness there. There's a, there's a good father being shown here. A good, good father that looks at him with just this sincere love because he sees, he sees that this rich young man, who by the way, even though Jesus is the creator and the holder of all eternity, remember he is fully man and he's not much older probably than this guy before him. This rich young man was maybe in his 20s. Jesus, at this point, early in His ministry, was probably 30, 31. Maybe 32. I mean, humanly speaking, He's a young man too. And He sees this young man who, by all appearances, has it all together. He has everything. He has riches. He has obviously education. He knows the commandments. And he even has a sincerity because he said, oh, I, I've been careful to keep those ever since I was little. So, I mean, there's a sincerity there. And he's seeking Jesus. I mean, he runs up to Him after all. He falls down on the ground. Very undignified for a rich young person to do or a rich person of, of nobility to do. So he's seeing all these things. And so Jesus sees all that. And, and I mean, he loves Him. Because he sees what he's what he's trying to do here. And he also loves him because he, he pities him. He pities him. He sees all these things on the outside that everybody would look at and hold up as a great example, as someone to be like, and oh wow, he's got it all together. I mean, he's rich. He has authority and power. He probably was good looking because, I mean, after all, it's, it's hard to be rich and not good looking, right? Doesn't seem to happen much. So, I mean, from all appearances, He's got it all. But Jesus sees something that others don't. Jesus sees how far this guy is from really having what He needs. And He loves him because He wants to give it to him. He wants to provide it. Look at what He says next. So looking at him, Jesus loved him, and He said to him, you lack... One thing. Okay, I hear you. You're very religious. You've, as far as you know, you've kept all these commandments. You're rich. You've been given authority. You've got a lot going for you. You lack one thing. Go. Sell all you have, which was probably considerable, and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then, come, follow me. Like he had done to so many of these others that we've seen that he encountered. Like he did with Peter and, and Andrew. 
and James and John, like he did with Matthew and, and others, unlikely people, that he still said, come, follow me. And he's offering that to this man. Stop following what you've been following. Stop pursuing what you've been pursuing. Follow me. Pursue me instead. Then you'll find what you've been looking for. Which then leads us to some very shocking implications. That's what's next in this conversation, this encounter. Verses 22 through 27. Verse 22, this is the response of the rich young man to what Jesus just said. But he was dismayed. Some of your translations might say, at this his face fell. It's like he was, he was eager, he was happy, he was starting to think he was getting somewhere with Jesus. And then, what? What? He was dismayed by this demand. And he went away grieving. Your, your translation that you have open before you might say he went away sad. But grieving is really the better use of the word. The Greek word there is lupeo, and it really is grief. It's, it's hard-pressed grief. It's the same word used of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was down on his face and he said to his disciples, my heart is full of grief to the point of death. And he begged the Father, let this cup be passed from any sweat drops of blood. It's the exact same word and the exact same description there with Jesus as what was going on in this man's heart and his response. That's how heavy this hit him. He went away grieving. He was grieved to his soul. Why? Because he had many possessions. When the man responded that he had always kept the law, when Jesus said, you know the commandments, and he started mentioning them and and listing them off, and the the rich man said, oh, I've kept all those since I was a youth. When the man responded that he had always kept the law in that way, Jesus masterfully pointed to something beneath the surface of this man's life. He was just masterful in how he did that. He was shining light on a reality in this person that that loomed like an iceberg beneath all the external performances and appearances. That's how icebergs work. You know, you, you see the top and underneath there's this huge part that you don't see, and that's what causes ships to be in trouble. I mean, think Titanic. And that's what Jesus was doing. He was shining His holy light, His all-seeing light, on the, the deeper reality of this man's heart that loomed like an iceberg beneath the surface, beneath all those external performances and appearance. And what Jesus was doing was revealing that this man, despite what he might have thought, despite being self-deceived, He wasn't actually obeying all the law because he wasn't obeying and living out the two greatest commandments. In Matthew 22, Jesus talks about those two greatest commandments. You don't have to turn there, and I'm not going to go there. I'm just referencing that, that Scripture because that's where he talked about the two greatest commandments. And he's revealing 
that this rich young ruler wasn't, first of all, he wasn't really loving the Lord God with all his heart, soul, and mind because he wasn't willing to follow Jesus who was God in the flesh right there before him. He wasn't willing to surrender everything for the sake of the Lord his God, which was standing right there in front of him. And if he wasn't willing to love Jesus enough to turn away from all the other things he loved, all the lesser loves in his life, then he wasn't really loving the Lord God with all his heart, soul, and mind. So he wasn't following the first and greatest commandment. And secondly, where Jesus says in Matthew 22, the second commandment is like unto the first, the second greatest commandment. He wasn't loving his neighbor as himself. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. That's the first and greatest commandment. And the second, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, on these two hang all the other commandments, all the law. Well, this rich young ruler didn't love his neighbor as himself. He loved himself and his money more than than those that were in need that he could help with all the money if he gave it to them. So despite his claim of keeping all the law, which also, by the way, had a healthy coating of sinful pride, he hadn't kept all the commandments, and therefore he was a sinner in need of a Savior, just like everyone else. You see how Jesus, just with surgical precision, cuts past all the superficial layers and reveals the heart? What he revealed to this rich young man is what so many other people need to have revealed to them. Maybe you, maybe me. It's this. The things people have often have them. The things people have often have them. And often they have them a whole lot more than people have the things. The things people have often have them in a a vice grip of control. It was true of the rich young ruler. Is it true of you? Do your things have you? Or do you have them and you use them for God's glory and His purposes? What He's entrusted to you? Tough question. See, the problem with the rich young ruler was not his wealth. That wasn't the issue. It's that his wealth was at the core of his identity and at the heart of his worship. He worshipped his wealth. His wealth defined him. I want to share with you a a really profound quote by Tim Keller from his book, Jesus the King, as he talks about the rich young ruler. He says this, When Jesus called this young man to give up his money, the man started to grieve because money was for him what the Father was for Jesus. It was the center of his identity. To lose his money would have been losing himself. You see, what Jesus wanted the rich young ruler to do is what he wants all of us to do. It's this, Jesus wants us to stop holding on to the things that hold us back from him. That's what Jesus calls all of us to do. It's what he wants for our life. Jesus wants us to stop 
holding on to the things that hold us back from Him. He wants us to hold loosely the things of this life and of this earth because if not, they will hold tightly to us and they will keep us back from Him. That's why we pause in every worship service for tithes and offerings. It's not because God just needs our money. It's because God needs us to understand and to say to Him and to us, this doesn't have us. You have us. We're yours. We're not our monies. And all that you've given us, it's not really ours. It's yours. So we, we acknowledge that. And we're saying that to ourselves. You don't control me. What's in my wallet doesn't own me. Rather, God owns it. And I glorify Him with it. He's my identity. And I worship Him. Like the old hymn says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. That's what we need, church. We need the things of earth to grow strangely dim because far too often they are far too bright. Sadly, this man considered what Jesus was asking too high of a price. The mere thought of it left him devastated and probably emptier than ever. C.S. Lewis says in The Magician's Nephew, the first book in his Chronicles of Narnia series, Aslan, the character that represents Jesus in that series, said, All get what they want. They do not always like it. That was true of this rich young man for all that we know. We're not told that anything changed. I hope it did. Back in the text, there's more shocking implications. After this part of the encounter, as the rich man is going away grieving, verse 23 tells us this, Jesus looked around and said to His disciples, because they were here for that whole thing, they heard it all, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astonished at his words. Again, Jesus said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 26, They were even more astonished, saying to one another, then who can be saved? In other words, if this guy can't be saved by his own merit, by his own achievements, by all that he has, then what's the hope for anybody else? Looking at them, verse 27, looking at them, Jesus said, with man it is impossible. In other words, with man it's impossible to save themselves. But not with God, because all things are possible with God. See, the words of Jesus amazed the disciples because they assumed that wealth was a sign of God's blessing and favor, a reward for excellent moral behavior. It was goodies in your stocking, a view that it's safe to assume the rich man also shared. And in contrast, it was believed that poverty was a sign that you weren't living a good life, and God was not pleased just like Santa Claus is coming to town. And man, if you think about that, Solomon was obviously right when he said, 
nothing is new under the sun. Because, hey, that's 2022, right? That's, that's every day. It's in the world out, outside the church, and unfortunately, in many examples, tragically, it's within the church as well, within the general church. I've got to be really, really good to get God's favor and, and His blessing and, uh, oh, wow, I have wealth, and I have health, and I have all these other things. I have mansions and cars and Learjets, and so God's favor is upon my life. Praise Jesus. But if, if you don't have those things, and you struggle financially, and dot, 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 well then, oh, I guess you must have sin in your life. The prosperity gospel is alive and well. And it's unfortunately how many people view the Christian life, which is no Christian life at all. Jesus wasn't saying that wealth is wrong. Let's get that straight. What he was saying is that riches can often be a trap for us because they can fool us into thinking that they can truly satisfy us when in reality, no amount of money or things will ever be enough. You just listen to any celebrity when they're being honest and candid about their life. How much is enough? Are you finally happy after you've achieved blah, 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 blah? After you've reached this level of success, are you happy now? Well, no, not, not really. I, I need some more. See, wealth can lure us into a false sense of security and meaning instead of finding those things in God and in our relationship with Him. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 6, 9-10, through 10, those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, and this is something that's often taken out of context, it's not for money, it's for the love of money, is a root of all kinds of evil. And by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. We see that all the time all around us. Oh, I pray that's not your story. So how do we keep it from being your story and my story, our story? How do we guard ourselves against that? How do we guard ourselves against being like the rich young ruler, even if we're not rich? How do we guard ourselves against what Paul wrote to Timothy there about the the trap of wealth? Well, Hebrews 13.5 is a really good answer, a really good solution. Hebrews 13.5 the writer there says, keep your life free from love of money. Why? Because as Paul said, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. So keep your life free from love of money and be content. Be content with what you have. For He, God, has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Friends, The God of all the universe has promised to never leave you or never forsake you if you're in Jesus, His Son. What more could we need? In fact, Jesus gave everything to be our everything. That's why He left heaven. Jesus gave everything. He who was rich beyond comprehension for our sakes became poor that we might know and experience the riches of God through Him. Jesus gave everything to be our everything. 
Is He your everything today? That's the question I leave you with. Is He your everything? Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the clarity of Your Word. Thank You for allowing us to, in Your Word and through it, really to be there in a way as the rich young ruler encountered your son, as he encountered him, and to hear what was said. And, and oh, I pray, Father, please, by your Spirit, illuminate this encounter, this text that was so rich with truth. Illuminate that into our hearts, Holy Spirit. Apply it to us here and now. Help us to live in a way that is in great contrast to this rich young ruler. We don't have to be rich to struggle with what he struggled with. There's so many things we could fill in the blank with with what might have us in its grip. Oh, Holy Spirit, empower us to let go of whatever might have us. Help us to hold loosely the things of this life and this earth. Help us to let go of anything and everything that would be keeping us from Jesus. Because He gave everything to be our everything. May He be our everything. And it's in Jesus' name and for His name I pray all this. Amen.